This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Tactics Where Speech Isn't Violence, Tolerance Isn't Love, and Disagreement Isn't Hate. Thank you so much for being with us here on the program on this Wednesday afternoon. It is great to be able to be with you. As always, we are going to go ahead and get started out with our Alabama coronavirus update. Some interesting information coming out of the Alabama Department of Public Health. So let's go ahead and look at that. You can see that we have 10,617 confirmed cases. We had just passed the 10,000 threshold this week. So now we're looking at coming close to 11,000. Uh, it looks like right now that we may actually hit that before the end of the week. Hopefully that's not the case, but considering we've had 300 plus uh, yesterday and we've had another 300 plus for today, that could very well happen unless the trend starts moving downward. And you'll notice also that we have 136, 372 tests that have been conducted there are 449 deaths confirmed from COVID-19, and we also have 1,317 hospitalizations statewide. Looking at the data here today, it is something that we do need to note that there has been an increase in infection rate if you're looking at it over the course of the past few weeks, comparing, for example, this week to last week. If you're looking at those seven-day periods, it's clear that the infection rate has gone up a little bit. Now, I don't think that this is necessarily something to be alarmed about. As I have said many times, the purpose of the shutdown was not, at any point, no matter who was proposing it, no matter who was talking about it, whether it was a Democrat governor or a Republican governor, the talking point that was always bantered about is that this is not something that we're doing to get rid of the virus. This is going to keep us from overwhelming the healthcare system. And so, yeah, when Albert, or sorry, when Alabama starts opening up and starts allowing people to, to get out more, and also when, when people just naturally, I think this actually has very little to do with whether the government said we're allowed to do it or not. I think it's just people making decisions on their own. When people start getting out, moving around a little bit more, you're going to have that increase in infection rate. And if you look at the new cases for today, you'll see that that pattern, the data also reflects that. Today we're having, we have almost exactly the same rate of new cases as we did yesterday, which obviously is not great because we were accustomed to being somewhere between 200 and 250, and the past two days we've been just barely over 300. But one thing that I will say about it is I'm actually somewhat relieved because if you look at the period over the past three days before today, you'll notice that there was a very noticeable upward pattern that was, was gaining pretty rapidly, and it just kind of stopped around 300. So that's good. I was afraid that we were going to have somewhere in the 400s today. Thankfully, that did not happen. So it looks like we're holding steady at 300. We'll have to check back tomorrow to see if it winds up going anywhere beyond that. But the new cases seem to have, at least for the moment, stabilized. And, you know, maybe they go back down on the weekend. Maybe that does play a bigger role this upcoming weekend than it has in the past. Maybe people just don't go in to get tested around that time. And, and that may be something that's causing it, uh, causing a, a dearth in, in confirmed cases. It's really hard to say right now. 
it looks like not as many people are opting to be tested. It, it doesn't seem as though we're having a resource issue with having enough tests. It's more likely that what is happening is people are not getting sick at a as higher rate or people that are getting sick just aren't. It, it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of people. I, I've not seen any reports of some kind of massive wide test shortage where people that want to get tested are not able to get tested. That's not really happening on the national level that I've been able to see. I've not seen reports of that happening here in Alabama, in Alabama's own media, which I, I kind of feel like they would jump on that and cover it if if that was taking place, especially considering the way that the Alabama media normally handles things. So Right now, it just doesn't seem as though that's the case, which means if there are fewer people getting tested, there's probably less people that feel that they have a need to get tested. Part of that is probably because the fear has died down a little bit. The novelty of this virus has gone away to a degree, but it's also probably because there are legitimately less people getting sick, but the infection rates are still relatively uh, up which means that the people that are getting sick, they are also the ones getting tested. And to a degree, that might actually be a good thing because it means a lot of our tests are not being wasted. It means that the people that are getting tested are people that actually do need to be tested because, like I said, the the infection rate is up. I, I should clarify, I think I accidentally said that less people are getting sick. Well, no, it seems that more people are getting sick what I meant to say was the rate of people getting sick. In other words, our ratio of tests to uh, confirmed cases is actually going down. So that's what I meant to say, which, which again, since that fear has died down, what is probably happening is people that are getting tested are ones that actually do need to get tested. And that probably means we're wasting less resources. So that in and of itself is a win, even though the confirmed cases seem to be up a little bit, especially compared to the previous week. So speaking of testing, let's go ahead and look into how much Alabama is testing. We've kind of gotten into a pattern here to where we're floating somewhere around the 2,000 to 4,000 mark. We're, we're usually, we have been floating around about 3,000-ish. And you'll see, if you look at the pattern over the past three or four days, the only outlier you have to go back to the uh you have to go back to Sunday to see more tests than that and again that test uh, that t daily testing being so much higher maybe because we got zero results from the day before so it's probably two days worth of tests especially considering that that was on a weekend where the testing seems to be down a little bit most cases so realistically We've we've fallen into a pattern to where we're probably testing realistically about 2,000 to 4,000 people every single day, which isn't bad, but it's also not great. Uh, you may have heard a couple weeks ago we did a state-by-state -state comparison and looked at some of the neighboring states, Tennessee, Florida, Mississippi, and Georgia, and found that Alabama was not doing great on testing. The only state that was doing worse than us on testing was indeed Mississippi. And since our testing has actually gone down, it's hard to believe that we've gained any ground. So uh, I don't know that this is necessarily the government's fault. It doesn't sound like we're having an issue just based on my reading and, and my looking through the data that we're having an issue where people want to get tested and can't. It's more like less people are willing to get tested and going and seeking out a test, which is part of the reason I think that we really, really do need to 
open up uh, antibody testing. I think that that's really important. That would give us a much better look at exactly what is going on here. Um, so l let's go ahead and look at hospitalizations because that's also going to be a really important indicator. So let's go ahead and, and look at our hospitalization rate. So if you look at our hospitalizations, you'll see that just like many of the other stats that we've shown you, we've gotten to a, a point of some regularity. Uh, it's definitely been climbing since Sunday, but we've kind of leveled off at roughly 30-ish a day. And remember, these are new tests. This is not total tests. Or, sorry, these are new hospitalizations, not total hospitalizations. But we've kind of moved into a comfortable lull, whereas if you look at the week before this week, the numbers were just all over the place. And so I guess the advantage is we're having relative predictability. Our overall hospitalization rates are down, so that's good. Certainly something that we can be happy about. But as far as the predictability, I think that the predictability is actually really good for our healthcare system because what you don't want, and this is one of the things that the shutdown was designed to stop in the first place, what you really don't want is having days on end where you've got virtually no patients and then all of a sudden everybody gets sick on the same day and then you overwhelm the system. I mean, the, the whole reason for the shutdown and flattening the curve so that we could keep that spike down to where our medical resources were not going to be exhausted was specifically to prevent that. And so that never happened in the state of Alabama. In fact, our hospitals are actually below capacity that they normally would be. Uh, maybe that's ticked up a little bit since the order was revised at 5 o'clock on Monday. So now that they're able to do things like elective surgeries, hopefully that's something that has uh, started to tick back up and our hospitals are, are doing the work that they do so well keeping us healthy. But at one point, UAB, which was the hot zone for the coronavirus in Alabama and Birmingham, and by far the hardest hit area up until Baldwin County started catching up a little bit. But I mean, for the longest time, Jefferson County, that was ground zero for the coronavirus in the state of Alabama. And even they were saying, yeah, we're at like 60% capacity. We're not even close to full. In fact, we got people standing around not doing anything. We're, we're taking massive cuts in pay. We're having to send people home. And so that never really manifested itself. And so the fact that not only are our hospitalization rates for this virus down a good sign, but the fact that they are down and also they are getting more consistent to where it's easier to predict, that's something that is a very, very good sign for our hospital rate. But I mean, when you think about that, 30 hospitalizations across the entire state of Alabama, a state with a population of 4.88 million, that's relatively nothing. I mean, I'm not saying that it should just not be a concern anymore. I'm not saying that we should just ignore it and not even keep an eye on it. I wouldn't be showing you the hospitalization rates every single day on this show if I believed that. But what I am saying is we haven't come anywhere near the levels that we would have to reach to even start to think about overwhelming our hospital system. So that is a really good thing, and the fact that it is more predictable now is even better for our doctors and nurses and, and the people working in our hospitals, our, our medical staff. So let's go ahead and look at the coronavirus deaths. Now, this is one that is up a little bit. We're a little bit above the norm because we had gotten to a point to where our norm was roughly 12-ish. And we were seeing a daily average. Of course, they were up and down a little bit with deaths. But we were seeing something around 12, and that was pretty 
indicative of what we could expect. We've had a little bit of up and down. You can see the lull there from the weekend, and then yesterday, Tuesday, and then today, Wednesday. Uh, Tuesday was up a good bit. It didn't quite tie the, the all-time high, but it was uh, 28, and today we're right at 20 new deaths. So definitely above average, definitely not something that is good. Again, a, a bit of a bump in numbers is to be expected when you start opening things up. But 20, again, is, is not something to throw yourself into a panic about. It's uh, actually down a little bit from yesterday. And so it looks like we're, we're doing pretty good here. Now, I have a comment here in the comment section from Miss Karen, who is saying that uh, she just asked me a question, which I appreciate. Uh, just ask if I think that, um, let me see if I can pull it up here. Facebook's not wanting to cooperate. Oh, there we go. Uh, do we need to fully open up, uh, back up with restrictions? Well, the libertarian in me, of course, would say yes. I don't think that we ever should have in, uh, put any restrictions in. I'm fine with the government putting out guidelines. I think that's good. I think that's helpful. I think it's important to hear from our leaders and some of the experts and some of the things that we can do to help make these decisions ourselves and protect ourselves, protect our families. I was never in favor, never in favor at any point of the restrictions. And the thing is, right now, when you're asking about whether or not we should open fully back up, uh, from a government standpoint, of course, I, I never thought the restrictions should have been put there in the first place. If you're asking me on the grounds of whether or not I think we should just open up, all move back to life as normal, I'm going to say no. I think as individuals, we have the responsibility as free Americans, to make good decisions, to be smart. And there are going to be some things that I think that people will wisely not do for a while. I mean, you're probably just not going to have a crowded baseball stadium in Riverwalk for a little while. You're not going to have a slam full movie theater. But I do think that there are things that both businesses and private citizens can do to start opening it back up, start getting more like what we're accustomed to more like what uh, normal life looks like for us than we have been seeing in recent days. So I, I do think that we can move more towards that. And my next segment is actually going to be something that speaks very much to that. So if you'll go ahead and check out this graph, this is a projection. This is a model. This is uh, updated to include new data as it comes in, but this is primarily a projection of what is going to happen here in the future. So we'll go ahead and bring that up really quickly. Oh, sorry, had an issue there. All right, so what you'll see on this chart here is you can see that that, that big blue line there is the testing and the dotted line is the projected testing. So this is something that uh, once you see that solid line, and this is true for the other stats on this chart, once you see that solid line turn into a dotted line, then you're moving from real data to projected data of what they think it's going to be. So they're expecting our testing to go way up. I got to be honest, I'm not sure that I agree with that unless we move towards... Uh, having antibody testing because less and less people are wanting tests right now. Now, maybe that changes when we do start opening society back up. For example, if schools start testing, well, that's obviously going to pump our numbers way up. And you can see there at August 1st, so this doesn't even include the 
that doesn't even really include that because, of course, schools won't even open until after August 1st. But the point is, you can see right there why that is an important statistic. I, I don't think that that one's necessarily going to come true, but I think the important thing that that statistic does show is, is at least shows us where the experts are projecting our possibility for testing is going to be. So they think that the capability of us to do testing at that rate is going to basically skyrocket over the next couple months. The really important thing I wanted you to see about this, and you can see that, that line that shows us where today is, you can see there that the that was the estimated, in other words, the projected infections. That's where they thought the state of Alabama was going to be. And then you see that solid line there. Those are the confirmed infections. Those are where we actually are. Well, you can see that, and this would especially be even more true if you were to zoom in on this statistic, that we have wildly outperformed the projections. Now, that's not to say that the model in and of itself was bad. I mean, the, they were doing a lot of guesswork, and I'm sure that the experts that put that together were doing the absolute best that they can. But it does go to show you that they really overestimated the whole thing. They really, really overestimated where this thing was going to go, and Alabama just did not have the level of infections that a lot of the experts were expecting there to be. And because of that, I, I think that that really does speak to the fact that I'm not going to harp on the models being wrong because models are always wrong. They're models, and, and they're doing guesswork by definition because if you had the data, there would be no reason to make a model. If you had the data, you would just show people the data. You wouldn't need to make a model, and so nobody makes a model if they have good data to go off of. And so the models are subject to the input that is put inside of them, and that's what they're going to bleed out. But what this does show is the virus is significantly less worse than we thought that it was going to be. And that's true nationwide, but that graph was specifically looking at the state of Alabama. And so there's no question that we have radically overperformed when it came to keeping this virus from becoming the deadly pandemic that we saw in countries like Spain and China and Italy, that Alabama's just done a significantly better job of that for a number of different reasons. We could talk about what those are, but ultimately, that's the big takeaway from this, that we really have, uh, they thought that it was going to be significantly worse and so the idea of politicians telling us that we just we have to stay shut down and we've got to all stay in our houses for another, uh, you know, three or four months or something ridiculous like that. I've even heard some people uh, actually Joe Biden's guy, who's one of his health advisors, was saying the other day, 18 months. I mean, that's just ridiculous. When you're looking at where the projections were, and this is one of the big issues that I'm coming up against when I'm having these debates about. Uh, whether we should, quote-unquote, follow, follow the models or not. I'm not saying that the models in and of themselves were made in bad faith. I think that there might be some that were, but the overall, the average model was not something that was made specifically with a political agenda in mind. Most of them were just going off of the unknowns and giving you a worst-case scenario, and some of them included what's going to happen if we do social distancing and, and some form of mitigation. Some of them weren't. And you, you have to be very careful when reading them to find out which one you're reading. But looking at these charts and looking at these models, it just turned out to be a lot better than we thought that it was going to be. It turned out to be not nearly as deadly a virus as we originally projected it was going to be, which is a good thing. 
The problem is when you have to pick between data and a model, you always go with data. When the models came out, it made sense to be overly cautious. We didn't know that it was going to be not nearly as bad as we thought it was going to be. Now that we know, it makes sense to go off of the data. And if there are models that project into the future that take the new data into account, we can use those as a guide. But we also need to remember that this thing wound up being just not as bad a pandemic as we originally believed it to be. And so I think that that does make a significant difference. Now, this next one, which, because uh, when we're talking about the whole models versus uh, data thing, I don't mind using new models. I like the fact that the new models are incorporating the data. That's what they ought to do. They ought to adjust when they get real-world data to work off of so that the models can do what the models are supposed to do, which is have a more accurate projection of what is actually going to happen. The issue is a lot of the people that are just saying the models, the models, the models, they're holding on to the models that originally came out. They're hanging on to the models that were projecting ridiculous levels of death and destruction based on these things that have since been proven incorrect. I have no problem with somebody coming to me with a model and saying, yeah, we adjusted this one for new data. This is what it says. And and I'll look at it and I'll listen intently. and, And for all I know, I might wind up agreeing. I've done that with a couple of people that have done that. But the people that are saying that we need to hang on to models that were created back in March or mid-February, that's just dumb. There's no reason to go off of models that didn't have that data to incorporate when we now have models that do incorporate through world data and give us a realistic look at what these things were supposed to do. And by the way, it's also important to remember that a lot of people will say, yeah, well, what you can't do with that, though, is... What you can't do and what you run the risk of doing when saying that, oh, we just overreacted. Well, you can still say we overreacted and not think that the models are trash and we should throw them all out. You can say that, hey, it turned out to be a lot better than we thought it was going to be. And as a result of that, uh, maybe we should start moving out a, a little bit more than we were. We don't need to stay as locked down as we have been. What doesn't make any sense is to say, oh, the models were off, and so we don't need to listen to any more models, any more data. Well, that's not the right response. And then the other response isn't really good or productive either, where they say, oh, we have to listen to the models because the models that were made back then, you can say that they were wrong, but see, those were the models if we did nothing. Well, no, there were a lot of models that came out in February and March that were giving us a projection of what it would look like if we did social distance and mitigate, and it turns out a lot of them even overestimated that. So it really does come down to having these discussions on a case-by-case basis. But let's go ahead and look at this other one, because this talks about our medical resources when it comes to the Yellowhammer State. This is a chart about Alabama and whether or not we can exhaust our medical resources or or are projected to. Now, again, this is one that incorporates new data. And you'll notice that even looking at the projections that that have new data incorporated into it, it already says that we're past the worst part of the virus. And what it also shows is that green line there, that big solid green line that you're seeing across the bottom of it, that's the ICU beds available that we were so worried about that we wouldn't have enough of those that our resources would be exhausted and there would be people getting turned away from treatment when it comes to this virus. Well, that never happened. 
even looking at the projection that was made earlier, we just never got there. And even at that point, we still never even really came close to exhausting our medical resources. And, and like I said earlier in the program, we were looking at our hospitals that actually wound up being mostly empty and didn't have enough patients. And so if according to even the models and projections, we're already past the worst point in this virus, it doesn't make sense to continue along the same path. And this is a uh, discussion that I had with a good friend of mine the other day, really, really smart guy, somebody that actually works with models a lot, and, and he and I were discussing this specifically. One of the things that he was talking about is uh, basically an abundance of caution, and when the model shows a couple different things, you should always prepare for the worst possible scenario, which, by the way, is not necessarily a unreasonable or irrational position to take. And like I said, when this thing came out and there were a lot of question marks and a lot of unknowns, it did make sense to take several precautions. I myself took a lot of precautions. Long before there were orders of a shutdown coming from Governor Ivey, I had already self-quarantined. I was already locked up in my apartment. I was already doing meetings via video. I was already, uh, even back when my church actually did physically meet in the building, the last Sunday that they did that, I didn't go. I was sitting at home watching them on live stream. So I did take those precautions. I think that that's a wise and prudent thing to do, especially if you're somebody like me with risk factors. Here's the difference, though. It's one thing if taking those precautions cost you nothing or cost you very little. What we're looking at is a pandemic that in federal spending alone, that's not counting any losses from business, just in federal spending has already cost us $6 trillion dollars. And they're proposing another $3 trillion on top of that coming up. Because it cost us $2 trillion originally, we had another trillion, and then we've got about uh, $3 to $4 trillion more that came through in bank bailouts and printing money. And now the newest plan that they've come up with, that they've proposed, they haven't passed it yet, so we don't know if this one's going to come through or not, is another $3 trillion on top of the $6 trillion we already spent. Now think about this. It took us all the way to George W. Bush to get that much in debt over 200 years to get $9 trillion in debt. And we will have, if this thing passes, spent that in the span of a couple of months. I mean, that's absurd. There's no way that that's sustainable. At some point, somebody's going to have to pay for it. And again, that doesn't count the $2 trillion that we've already lost in small business, probably even more than that. These are just some preliminary estimates. And so I'm all for an abundance of caution. But when the caution winds up costing you something, then you have to move from just, oh, let's, let's do whatever it takes to be cautious and let's, let's err on the side of caution. Well, I'm okay with erring on the side of caution. But when that caution is costing you a ton of money, eventually it becomes a risk versus reward analysis. So is the risk of, you know, having the, the virus worth what I'm going to have to do, whatever it's going to cost me? That's the question, because we all make risk versus, uh, we all make risk versus cost analysis every single day. We do that all the time. I mean, literally every day that we step out of our front door is a, uh, risk versus cost analysis. That, that's just the, always the way that it's been. And so 
At a certain point, it doesn't make sense to say, well, there is some risk, especially when you look at the what we now know about this virus actually being far less risky, far less fatal than originally thought, especially if you're a young person, especially if you're healthy, have no pre-existing conditions, all of those things. If you have that, your risk is basically zero. But the risk of this country being plunged into a depression that could take over a decade to dig out of, that's actually pretty high right now, considering everything that we've done. And so it makes a lot more sense to mitigate that risk than to mitigate the very, 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 very slim chance if you're a guy in your early 20s to just stay at home and do nothing. I'm all in favor of people that are elderly or at risk, like myself, sheltering in place for a little bit longer than normal. That's what I plan to do. But the idea that we have to lock everybody up in their room, even if there's almost no chance that they're going to die whatsoever, especially kids who have basically a 0% chance. I mean, it's it's like 0.000001 that they're going to die from this thing. It makes no sense for that to be our policy from here on out. It's just, it's illogical to take on that kind of risk. But that data seems to back up the idea of, the data seems to back up the idea that the risk versus what it's costing us right now just is no longer worth it. And that's ultimately what this comes down to. So, uh, well, I, 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 hmm, sorry, I got distracted there for a second. Uh, so what we're going to do is we've got a daily dose of stupid. I know we don't usually do that on a Wednesday, but you'll see why I, I had to go with this one here in a second. So let's go ahead and go to our daily dose of stupid. You've messed it up. <laughs> You're stupid. And today's daily dose of stupid. There is a new professor at Auburn. And this is one of the greatest stories I've ever done for a daily dose of stupid. Uh, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed this one. I laughed at this one probably for, for 10 minutes off and on. Uh, there's a new professor there named Jesse A. Goldberg. He's a doctor and a lecturer at Auburn University. He's new to the Auburn family. And you can, and you all know how much I love Auburn. I am an alumna, or not an alumna, that's female. Uh, no, wait, alumnus, yeah, that's it. I'm an alumnus of Auburn. See, that's, that's something I learned at Auburn. Uh, maybe I should have spent a little more time studying because it took me a second to come up with it. But uh, I'm an alumnus of Auburn. I've uh, always been an Auburn fan. My dad went to Auburn. He graduated from there just like I did. And so I love my Auburn Tigers. I love my university. But this guy, man, he's just, he's not got it together. Uh, this is a new English professor there at Auburn. And you, you've got to see this tweet that he posted earlier. Uh, here we go. You can see this. So this is Professor Jesse A. Goldberg. And he says, my first controversial tweet as a member of Auburn University faculty I know it's just a mascot, but I'm never going to call myself a War Eagle or say, go War Eagles. Sorry. Oh, gosh, there's just there's so much wrong with that on so many levels. First of all, he has since deleted that tweet. So apparently it was way too controversial for him originally. Uh, <laughs> first of all, War Eagle is our war cry. It's not our mascot. It's never been our mascot. And so he's calling it a mascot. We're not the Eagles. We have an eagle. 
but we're not the War Eagles. We're the Tigers. And nobody ever says, go War Eagles. They say, go Tigers. Uh, so, first of all, he's wrong on even that. Like, even if you take any of the political stuff out of it, he doesn't seem to even understand that. What's really funny is the rationale he gave. And by the way, that tweet has since been deleted. But luckily, I got a, a screen grab of it beforehand. <laughs> The funny thing is, he doesn't want to say War Eagle or say Go War Eagles, according to his own words, because it has the word war in it. That's his explanation. <laughs> Apparently, uh, he's one of the Knights of Knee from Monty Python on the Holy Grail. You remember that they, they could not hear the word it. And so every time someone would say it, they'd go, Oh, we cannot hear the word! That's this guy that apparently the, the, the word war is a dirty word and he can't hear it anymore. I do think it's really funny how people on the left talk about Christians and, and people with conservative values as being a bunch of prudes and, uh, the, you know, that the don't cuss or that kind of thing. But then a word like war, they act like the biggest school marm in the world by... <laughs> just refusing to even hear the word or say it. They get triggered the second they hear it, and they would they they you know take painstaking links to go to to not say it. Look, War Eagle just is a battle cry for people that were going to be playing on the football field or the baseball field or the basketball court or the volleyball court or whatever else sport that we're playing. Believe me, I went to basically all of them when I was a student at Auburn. Uh, that's all it is. It's harmless. Nobody is advocating for war by saying War Eagle. I mean, it's it's not like uh, everybody at the game gets their shaker up and goes, War Eagle, Bomberan. That's not a thing that happens. <laughs> Nobody, even if they're the biggest war hawk in the world, actually thinks that that's what they mean by saying War Eagle. Uh, this guy... The, the best response to this was somebody, uh, another person, a member of the Auburn family that responded to it. I think she may actually be in the English department, a graduate of Auburn as well. This lady named Rachel P. Bless his heart. <laughs> I mean, that's really all you have to say, right? Bless his heart. It's the perfect Southern comeback to that. But <laughs> the, by the way, th that lady, uh, actually not somebody that is on the right, not somebody that's a conservative or a, a Christian, not somebody like me that's just shaking her head and laughing at how dumb this is. Her, if you look at her, her Twitter profile, one of the things on her profile bio is hashtag war in 2020. So she's not exactly a Christian conservative that, that caucuses with the GOP here in Alabama. <laughs> Even the liberals are looking at this and like, man, that guy stepped in it. But I guess because this guy is an English professor, this is just, I don't know, par for the course. If you've ever been around either the education department at Auburn or the English department with a handful of rare exceptions, they're all a bunch of fruitcakes. I mean, I, I've since I was, I'd never majored in ag ed, but I was always hanging around the ag ed people. I had a lot of friends that were ag ed. I had a lot of friends that were... Uh, education majors and other facets. I had some fraternity brothers that were in that line of work. Uh, and and they, they'll all tell you the same thing. They're all a bunch of fruitcakes. And some of the English professors like this guy, this is a, a pretty good sampling 
of that. Uh, I love his Twitter bio, by the way. If you look at the professor's bio, it says, lecturer at Auburn University, black studies, critical prison studies, queer theory, and American literature. <laughs> now, to illustrate why this is so incredibly ridiculous, I got to show you this. This is a picture of Professor Goldberg, and I'm sure that you could probably guess this based on his last name. I'm guessing he's he's probably of Jewish descent in some way, which, I mean, I don't care. But this is a picture of, of Dr. Goldberg. That is the whitest dude I have ever seen. I mean, he may not actually be white. He may actually be Jewish, but he certainly looks white. But think about the resume that I just laid out for you. Black studies and critical prison studies. <laughs> Does that dude look like he knows anything about prison or being black? I'm going to go with a pretty solid no. And maybe that's why he studied it, because he didn't know anything about it. Queer theory, now that I believe, he might actually have some first-hand information on that one that we're not aware of. That one I have no trouble believing. But black, <laughs> the fact that he's the professor of black, black studies and critical prison studies. Have you ever seen the Black Jeopardy sketch from Saturday Night Live? There's one where they have Louis C.K. on, uh, and he's a he's the African American history professor from BYU. <laughs> if you haven't seen it yet, the show's about to end. After we wrap up here, go check out that sketch. It's absolutely hilarious. Uh, but <laughs> the fact this guy is the Black Studies and Prison Studies professor. I don't know. It's just, that's, that's too much for me. I can't get over it. Uh, th this guy is just a bundle of hilarity on a number of levels. And I think the best thing is because we've all had fun with this, with this guy being triggered by the word war and not being able to, and, and the fact that he's a lecturer of, of black studies and prison studies. But ultimately I did want to dig into this because there was a, a quote that explained what he meant by abolitionist. Because you'll notice at the end of that Twitter bio, he says that he's an abolitionist. Well, he actually does explain what that means. And it's, it's quite entertaining as well. You can check this quote out from the professor. And it says there, the difference, or sorry, I'll look at the underlined part there. Not so much the abolition of prisons, but the abolition of a society that could have prisons that could have slavery, that could have the wage, and therefore not abolition as the elimination of anything, but abolition as the founding of a new society. So, I don't know how militant this guy is. I don't know a whole lot about him other than what the information that I've just given you. But it sounds like the guy is utopianist. In other words, he's one of these people that has just absolutely bought in hook, line, and sinker with the idea that government can somehow engineer and structure society and make it perfect to where people don't do bad things anymore. And that really is a pretty common, ridiculous as it is, a pretty common belief on the left. That the only reason people are bad, they basically all start out good. And the only reason people ever go bad is because somehow society corrupts them. Which A, begs the question, well, how did the first person become corrupted? 
That doesn't make any sense. Why on earth would the first person be corrupt in the first place if, you know, you, you already had that? And, and the second part of that is there have been countless people that have tried, and normally what happens is things like crime and slavery and an abridgment of freedom actually go up. So I don't understand what that's talking about. He's saying that there should be no society where a prison could even exist. Well, you're not going to create a crime-free society. That's just never going to happen. We can mitigate crime as much as we can. But the only place where crime would be virtually impossible is somewhere like China, where there's a camera everywhere, where it's almost impossible to commit a crime because they are going to know exactly who you are and where you are, and they track all of their citizens like their cattle. So, yeah, you could theoretically abolish and create a, a society where uh, prisons didn't exist because everybody was so afraid that the state would destroy them if a crime were to take place. But the thing is, even over there, they do actually have people in prisons. In fact, they even have prison camps for Muslims and Christians and pretty much any other religious person and people that just speak out against the government and criticize them. Is that really the society you want? Because that's the society that it sounds like you're trying to drive at. I mean, granted, they don't get rid of prisons completely because, like I said, they have, you know, for example, Muslims and, and Christians and, and gay people also in those camps. So they didn't eliminate prisons entirely, but that's what China was trying to do by creating that society. It's not going to work because ultimately it doesn't address the real problem. Why do people steal? Why do people commit property crimes? Why do people hurt one another? It's because of the evil intent in men's hearts. No society, no government can ever make that not a reality. Human beings are going to be human beings. Human beings are always going to be imperfect, and because of that, society is always going to be imperfect. Even the best society that you could come up with, even the society that I hearken back to, uh, you know, in the the 1790s, uh, a time where we had greatness to spare in our, our collective governing officials. You know what? Those guys had all kinds of problems. They were wildly imperfect. And I think that, you know, we're even more imperfect now, but the point is, it doesn't matter how good you get, it doesn't matter uh, how you craft your government, they're never going to be able to create a perfect society where there is an abolition of evil. That's just not going to happen. And the reason that, that crops up is because somebody has baptized their own mind in this secularist worldview that you can actually create a heaven on earth, that you can actually create some kind of utopia where bad things never happen to people. That's simply not true. It's not a possibility. It's never been done in human history. It's never going to be done, no matter how much time we have, no matter how much resources we had. Look, there are rich people that steal from people. There are people that are incredibly rich, that embezzle and get government kickbacks and all kinds of other things. That's one thing that I find really hilarious. The, the left constantly makes this case that, well, the only reason that people are ever doing anything bad is because society has corrupted them somehow and they don't have enough. Really? Well, then rich people should be the most virtuous people on earth. There should be no bad rich people. Rich people should be the people that you should be using as an example. See, rich people are perfect because they have enough money. Well, they're good people then. Except that's not what happens. There are bad, corrupt rich people and, and people on the left usually, and sometimes correctly, 
point out that sometimes rich people take advantage of other people. Why? Because they don't have enough? No, they, they have plenty. It's because humans inherently are not good. We're imperfect. We have problems. And you're never going to be able to abolish a society with prisons. And what's the ultimate end of that? Well, the thing you have to understand there is, and, and he talks about it in that quote, that you're not just abolishing the prisons. You're not just abolishing uh, wages and everything else. You're abolishing society. They want to burn down the whole system and start over. Now, I don't know if this guy actually believes that, but he is an adherent to the philosophy that does. He's adherent to the same socialist philosophy that says we've got to burn the whole world down and start over. That was the motto of the Fabian Society. That's the way that you get things like Cloward and Piven. That was essentially the methodology of Saul Alinsky. You see the same thing with with Lenin, with Pol Pot, uh, with the communist revolution in Venezuela, with the Castros, all of it. It's the same thing played out over and over again. They promise utopia. They think that if they just get exactly the right people in the positions of power in government, that they can eliminate poverty, they can eliminate want, and when they do, they'll also eliminate things like crime and evil, and, and everybody will just be lounging around with nothing to worry about, and, and they'll never have to work or anything. It simply can't be done. The world doesn't work that way. So... Yeah, I had a good time with this segment. I think that it's really funny and really amusing. But it's important to note that, yeah, we laugh at the goofy and relatively trivial joke of the guy not wanting to say the word war because he thinks war is a dirty word. But ultimately, what underlies that, the philosophy underneath that, is actually pretty terrifying. And it doesn't bother me so much that one professor at Auburn believes that. There's probably multiple professors at Auburn that believe that. What's really terrifying is that this ideology is taking root. That there are people that believe a socialist society actually can create a utopia and that we should be thus implementing those policy proposals here in America. It's not going to work. It never has. It never will. And the only thing that we will get is a world that is far closer to hell than heaven far closer to dystopia than utopia. That's going to be our show for this evening. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.